Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to Jeffrey Tiong, the founder and CEO of PatSnap, a connected innovation intelligence platform used by R&D teams and IP professionals. Jeffrey was fresh out of college in Singapore and trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life. A few years earlier, he had interned for a startup in the US where he'd spent a lot of time researching patents and intellectual property. He recalled how hard it was to do that research and he started thinking about a software product that could help to make that work much easier. He managed to raise around $40,000 from a startup grant through his university. He spent a third of that money on buying servers and the rest of it on hiring developers. But that money wasn't enough to get the product built. In fact, it took two years to ship the product. And during that time, his team had to take on all kinds of projects to help pay the bills. He finally managed to sign his first customer, which happened to be his university library. And he closed that sale by pleading with the librarian to give his product a shot. But even after two years, the product was unstable and full of bugs. And while they found more customers, the team had to deal with complaints and unhappy customers. It was a stressful time for Jeffrey. He was finding customers and closing sales. But at the same time, he and his team were desperately trying to make the product better and more stable. Today, Jeffrey's company employs around 800 people, and has about 8,000 customers. They've also raised over $51 million in funding, and their customers include companies and organizations like Walt Disney, Tesla, and NASA. It's an interesting interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Almer, for the invitation. So do you have a favorite quote, something that inspires or motivates you or, or just gets you out of bed to work on your business? Yes, if I will say there is one, it will be one by Henry Ford, which I read many years ago. It goes by um, whether you think you can or you can't, you are right. I love that. And I was actually watching a documentary of Henry Ford last night on PBS. And uh, I, I think it's something that it's not software related. It's not tech related in many ways, but I think there's a lot of lessons for for a lot of entrepreneurs from people like him in history. So for people who aren't familiar with PatSnap, can you give us an overview? What does the product do? Who is it for? And what's the main problem that you're helping to solve? Yes. Um, PatSnap is a connected innovation intelligence platform designed to help our users to identify technological opportunities that could affect the future growth and survival of their business. So nowadays it's uh, hyper in a hyper competitive world. Everyone is working on all sorts of ideas and every new idea, new product or invention that is intended for commercialization is uh, we should actually weight it against existing technology and innovation area and our platform help our user, especially from the R&D department and the IP department, intellectual property department of an organization to, to do that. On top of that, we also help them to understand the competitive landscape better from a technological standpoint. For example, what their competitors was planning to launch in terms of new product, how their technology works, what kind of patterns they have, in order to help our user to better position their product and also for risk mitigation. So that is kind of what we do. And can you tell us about the types of customers that you have? Like what type of companies, industries? Yes. Usually where there are a lot of R&D investment, those are where our potential customers are. In terms of geography, it will be US, Europe, and China. China has been investing a lot 
in R&D recently, especially in the last uh, 10 to 15 years. In terms of industry, the field industry that invests a lot in R&D are the life science, healthcare, the automotive industry, uh, manufacturing, electronics. These are the few industries that heavily invested in R&D and they will have a need for our type of tools. In terms of companies type, it ranges from very small startup, a tech startup to a, a big conglomerate. So as long as they have a need to invest in R&D, our tools will be of use to them. And typically, what type of problems would these companies have? So obviously, R&D, if you're investing heavily in that, there's a big investment. And you want to make sure that your money is going in the right places. But what exactly is the, the problem that they struggle with around? Is it, is it primarily around like patents and, and sort of IP type issues? Um, not necessarily. I, around IP will be one, how to better protect their ideas through patents or better IP protection. But there are a lot of our customers also use our platform to identify technological change or opportunities. For example, let's say uh, we have a customer, it's a smart car, battery powered uh, car in China. They are building a new car, essentially. They want to know what type of battery that can last longer than any existing car battery on the market. And they want to know how, for example, how Tesla car batteries technology work, how they make it. So through our platform, they can identify what are out there, uh, what we call the existing prior art, and it gives them inspiration or new ideas on how to do it better. So that, that is one way of how our platform is being used as well to identify what is the latest technology being deployed on the market and give them inspiration or new idea on how to even do it better. Now, I want to give people sort of a sense of the size of the business and where Patsnap is today. You founded the company in 2007. And as of today, 2020, you have around 8,000 customers, about 800 employees, and you've raised, I think it's just over $51 million to date. That's pretty good going for, I mean, I didn't even know that there was a product solving this type of problem. It's, it's such a, seems like such a unique area where at the same time, it seems a massive opportunity when you start thinking about how much money is going into R&D around the world. How did you come up with the idea for this business? Yes, when I was studying in Singapore, in the National University of Singapore, there was a program, quite, I would say, forward-thinking program where they sent entrepreneurial-minded students to go overseas to work in a a local startup and study part-time in a local business school. So I was actually sent to Philadelphia work because of my biomedical engineering background. I was working in a, in a local medical device startup in Philly while at the same time studying in Wharton Business School in UPenn. And that's kind of how I first got the idea of a started Pestnet. And when I was there, when I joined the startup, I was the first employee and first intern. Literally, there were just two bosses and myself. And because it is a medical device startup, patterns and intellectual property was very key. So during my years there, I helped them to do a lot of patterns due diligence to understand how the pattern works. And in fact, they also have purchased some of the patterns portfolio from another company in California. So that was really how I got my first exposure to patents and intellectual property. And after that sting in US, about one and a half year, I went back to Singapore, finished my, my candidature, and, and I was thinking what to do after graduation. And I say, why not give it a try? And because uh, I believe that there should be a better tool to do this type of work. And I believe patents information are 
very, very useful to just to give some context about the whole pattern system. The essence of why there is a pattern system is the government give the inventor a 20 years of monopoly right for your invention. In return, the inventor need to disclose everything about how their invention work so that everyone else can learn from that. That is a deal. It essentially is a, is a commercial deal between the government and the inventor. So literally, the patent database we have contain more than 300 years worth of all invention uh, under the sun that uh, all the inventors have, at least for those who file with the patent system. So this is a very valuable data source. But unfortunately, because it was written and drafted by the lawyer, the patent attorney, so it wasn't so easy to understand. So my idea and vision back then is if we can decode this data source, this patent database, and make it as easy as possible, even um, a university student can understand how a technology works, that will be really great. So that was how I started PassNet. Did you kind of imagine at the time when you sort of envisioned this business, how how big it potentially could be? Yes, to be frank, um, I didn't think at least it will be as big as what we see now or even down the road. So naturally, when I developed this product, my first customer in mind will be the lawyers, the IP attorneys, and so on. But because our product back then wasn't so robust, wasn't so mature in the very early days of PassNet, so we couldn't sell into this uh, customer segment because from this audience, they really have very high requirement on our product in terms of the data coverage, the data accuracy, the data completeness. And somehow we, we try uh, other market segment and we managed to sell to the R&D department of an organization. And fortunately, R&D department in the organization, they actually also have even better purchasing power, have better decision-making, and they don't have as high requirement as the uh, lawyer's counterpart. And they also love the ease of use of our software. Even though back then, our data coverage wasn't as good as now, it's good enough for them at that point of time. So we managed to start selling into the R&D segment of an organization. And R&D is a huge market. Globally, every year, $2 trillion of R&D spending. And US is number one, about $500 billion. And uh, China comes at second, about $400 billion. So this is a huge market. And as of now, R&D spending is still not so efficient. There was a study in HBR a couple of years back that says that over the last 40 years, R&D productivity has dropped by 65%. So you can imagine how much money is wasted in R&D, in the $2 trillion. So if we can help them to even move the needle a little bit, I think that will be, that the market will be huge. So if I understood this correctly, you, you started out trying to sell to IP attorneys and then actually ended up with R&D customers because it was easier to sell to them. But that wasn't your initial target customer. It just happened to be an easier path to sale. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Not necessarily easier, but uh, it's still, because we are still trying out our go-to-market. But looking back, yes, the R&D segment, we chance upon it accidentally. So you started this business with $55,000. Where did that money come from? Uh, so um, very Fortunately, as well, back then in my alma mater, National Institute of Singapore, there was a program that encouraged and helped students who want to be entrepreneur and give them a startup student grant. And there was a program I participated. They gave me $55,000, which is about um, $40,000 USD and also gave me an incubator space for me to start my business back then. And how did you spend the money? What did you do with it? I think back then we, we didn't have uh, AWS cloud yet. So I spent, I think maybe close to 
one third of it on servers. So we actually have to buy our own servers on that. And the rest is just spent on um, hiring because to hire even one one programmer, uh, it already costs um, more than half of it. Yep. And, and how long did it take you to build the first version of that product? Yes, it took us about two years, two to three years, because obviously with 55,000 is, is not enough. So we actually have to did some projects, the outsource projects to keep the lights on. So we did some project and other ways, uh, get some other grant as well to, to fund the product development. Because for our product, on top of the servers, the development cost, we also need to purchase a lot of data source from around the world, from different government as well. Because all these patterns data, every country has their own patterns data. So we need to spend a lot of money to acquire this data set as well and to clean them up and to uh, make them available on our product. So it actually took us about two to three years before we launched our very crude first version of the product. And, and in that time, in those first two to three years, how much were you talking to potential customers or trying to validate that this was actually something that once it shipped, people were going to give you money for? Yes. Looking back, I, I did some research, but I, I will say I didn't do enough. Because I think that, that space, because I, I experienced it during my, my internship in US, back then there were actually uh, tools out there already, but it was just very expensive. To buy such tools from other provider on the market, it costs about 100000 a year just to use such tool to help power the, the search to identify the landscape. And the alternative are the free website on the market make available by the government. So, and the free website, obviously the, the feature set, the tools are wasn't so powerful. So my idea was to build something in between, something that is not so expensive, but something that can be widely available to everyone. So with this, with my experience back in the US in the internship, I started this. Along the way, the first two to three years, I think I only spoke to a few prospects trying to pitch them the idea. But because the product wasn't wasn't built, when, when I pitched them the idea, they will say, yes, this is a good good idea. When your product ready, come talk to me. The kind of feedback I got. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day and he said they went, you know, they went into a, a bunker for two years to, to build a product before they went out and talked to customers. And it worked out for them and, and it worked out for you. But it's also a very high risk strategy to spend that much time and money over so many years, not knowing f- with a high level of confidence that you have customers lined up. You know, these days we hear a lot of people talking about just, you know, the whole concept of MVP and 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 just build enough and 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 get it out there in front of customers as quickly as possible. When you look back at those first few years, do you feel that you were trying to build too much into the product, which is why it took two, three years to to build it? Or was it simply because the type of problem you were solving, you just didn't see any other way to build the product faster. Yes. No, I definitely agree that nowadays to to build a new product or even just to test a new market, new idea, we should use the MVP approach or the lean startup approach. In fact, now in PestNet, we every year we still have new product development more new ideas we are testing testing out. So we are we are now definitely doing that as well, just to build a quick prototype to test the market. Looking back, definitely I I think I, I could have done more uh, along this line, MVP. But back then it was so raw. I, I, I was fresh out of grad and I was just thinking there is a problem and I want to solve this problem. And also even now look back to build a prototype for our product. I think it was hard because it, it required a lot of data source to make this product kind of come alive. In terms of the concept, 
yes, we can build a mock-up to show, hey, this is what the product can potentially do. And uh, back then, we, we did that to show to, to prospect. And um, that is all I did back then. But I will say definitely uh, MVP approach, yes. In fact, we are doing it now. And we could have done more back then yeah, on this uh, approach, using this approach. So you finally ship the first version of the product. How did you go about getting that first sale? Yeah, my first sales was, I think, around, I would say around late 2009, early 2010, about two years after I started the business. And it was to my alma meter, actually. If I remember correctly, I sold to our university library to purchase our two because library uh, universities is also one of the customer segment. They purchase our type of tools for their students and uh, professor to use. And I just, I can't remember all the details, but I guess I just hustle and just talk to the librarian. I remember there was a very nice, kind lady, like just give us a shot and say, since you are graduated from NUS and you've been working on this and they give us a chance to sell them uh, these two. And even though back then, I, I would have to say our product just wasn't that good. I think uh, <laughs> that was my, my first deal. Yeah. Okay, great. How long did that take after you, you had shipped the product? So this, this is pretty, this is kind of, you know, a couple of weeks, months. After I shipped the product, I will say a couple months, uh, a few months at least. Yeah. Great. So that, that's, a, that's a good sign. You've got your, your first customer. And then let's talk about how you took that to the next level. So, we, you know, these days we talk about the whole idea of like, you know, 10 unaffiliated customers. And if you can get to that point, you're, you're, you've got a good idea and, and, a, and a potential business. So how did you go about getting to those first 10 and was it still you going out and selling or did you have someone helping you do that? Yes. Uh, in the early days, because we started first out of Asia and uh, we started with few sales. So we meet with our customers, with our prospect face-to-face. And uh, only in around 2012, I met my partner in London and uh, his previous experience and background was uh, inside sales, uh, outbound sales, where they can call up their customer and do a web demo. And if the customer loves it, then uh, they will pay us and we will give them the, the login to the software. So this is, I would say, the key go-to-market strategy we use in the early days, maybe from 2012, even until now, in fact. Of course, we now have different go-to-market, including inbound marketing, including all other uh, strategy. But in the early days, I think that what really helped us to propel the, our sales in the first few years was this uh, inside sales strategy where my partner, based out of London, set up a team and we call our prospect and customer in US and in Europe from out, out from London. That is our, our key go-to-market in the early days. And what was that initially like when you're, you're reaching out to customers and trying to give them a demo? Were people responsive? Were they interested in, in seeing the demo? Or, or did that take some work for you to get your, your messaging and, and kind of sales approach right? And then once people saw the demo... You, you know, you mentioned, hey, you know, the, the first version wasn't very good. Did customers see that or, or were they pretty happy with, with what the product did at the time? Yes. Yeah. In the, in the early days when our product still wasn't so mature, the whole demo journey, we actually have to be very, it's, it's very curated because a lot of things don't really work. So we have, to, when we do the demo to our customer, it's actually pre-curated demo journey, if you can uh, <laughs> uh, imagine. Yeah. Just so things don't break. Or, yeah, or yeah. just break, so things yeah. don't break and we find things that uh, highlight our product feature, like <laughs> yeah. some visualization analysis, use certain keyword that we know it, it will work and just uh, <laughs> make it work. Yeah. 
And and what what was the response from from customers? Like you know, as I said, were people like a lot of the times you can go out and reach out to people, and, and people are either sort of lukewarm, or, or they're like, yeah, now's not a good time, or maybe later, or we're good, or was this enough of a pain that you had picked that immediately most people wanted to get to a demo and find out what you were doing? Yes, I would say when we chance upon the R&D market, back then, the response was quite positive because a lot of them, they never seen this type of tool in their career, in their work before. So to them, this is quite innovative. They are quite open to for us to even just to book a demo to show them the tool. And when they see the tool, because we have good visualization to show, for example, how the pattern landscape is, they, they all were impressed by it. And they actually also have a need because R&D investment, they need to understand where, where the direction is, where the market is, what their companies are doing. And there wasn't any really user-friendly tool for R&D, at least back then. So I would say the response, when we charge upon the R&D market, the, the response was quite positive overall. Okay, great. So the, the demos go well. You've got sort of the inside sales. It sounds like it's starting to work. What about the customer onboarding experience? If you've got a, if you've got a product which you have to kind of have that very curated demo experience, how did that reality play out when real customers started using the product? Yes. So in the early days, definitely, when after we sold our products, we got a lot of feedback and sometimes complaint from the customer on, hey, how come this is not working? Uh, how come that is not working? And I remember there was a stressful time as well. Because yes, we managed to get ourselves, but then we also need to make sure customer uh, want to continue use it and continue to renew the software because for us subscription uh, revenue is key, the retention rate is key. So in the early days, we also yeah at the same time while we selling the product, we have to really also quickly improve our product in in many different ways. I would say it took us about two years as well, another at least another two years plus to kind of um, make our product is really good enough for most of the scenario and also we will identify customer that that will be best suit for this type of scenario and let them use it so there was some early days experience okay so when you said identify customers for that type of scenario tell me what you mean by that yeah as i mentioned in the early days we try to show to the ip department the legal department first of all we will try to avoid selling to that department because that is a very high requirement department. So our product wasn't exactly the best fit to them, even though sometimes we may be able still to sell to them, but that wasn't the best fit. And for R&D, that that was a much better fit. But even within the R&D, different industry, also different. For example, selling into a life science uh, company as compared to a manufacturing, as compared to maybe a, a consumer good. So we will also identify some segment, some vertical segment of industry that our product is a better fit for them. So we try to kind of narrow down or to be more specific with our target audience back then and to sell to this target audience as much as possible. You know, sometimes with with, with startups and founders, there's a reluctance to to get the product too early in front of customers and some of it is, you know, it, it's kind of like it's our baby and we don't want people to tell us that our baby is ugly and all that, that stuff. But also I think there's this fear that if my customers, my early adopters don't have a good experience, then that's going to damage my reputation. The product won't have credibility. The company won't have credibility. And it sounds like you were dealing with those types of issues where you you know you got the product out there you've got people using it it's doing the job because otherwise people wouldn't have kept paying you for it but there's also potentially a customer churn issue there's a customer satisfaction issue where people are telling you about what's missing or some people are complaining about that what would you say to people who 
maybe are sort of stuck in that situation today and know that they need to get the product in front of customers, but are scared for those same reasons. Yes, I can totally empathize with that. That is true. Uh, from uh, you treat your product as as your baby because you spend so much time on it. And I will say, given chance, I will definitely would like to promote the product sooner than back then. And and it's key. I think this reminded me of also. Uh, a book I read by Jeffrey Moore, Crossing the Chasm. I think in the Crossing the Chasm uh, model, there are early adopters, late adopters, and so on. And it's really key to find the early adopters. For us back then, if we use this uh, framework, the R&D, and some of them, even very visionary R&D thought leader, they were our early adopters. Because R&D, fortunately for us, R&D, by nature, their work is very forefront. They're willing to take a chance on us. So even though our product, sometimes we told them, hey, it's still not, not very robust and complete, but they're willing to give us a chance for that. So I think having identified the early adopters, the those who are very passionate about new technologies and willing to give it a try, I think is, is key for, for identifying the first group of customer who will be willing to pay for your product, even though your product may not be mature yet. Yeah, I think that's a great lesson. And and I think Jeffrey Moore's book, even though it's what like 30 odd years old now, it's still so relevant in so many ways. And And the way you just described it, yeah, I mean, a lot of the times we think about segmenting the market the way you did and, and finding the R&D customers. But then as you said, you can you can segment within that and probably there are R&D groups that are early adopters and there are R&D groups that are probably, you know, would be defined as the laggards in that industry. And if your product is in the early stages, the early adopters are going to be more comfortable using that product, even if it's not perfect. They're going to be more forgiving if the product fails now and then. Whereas somebody who, who is a laggard in that industry or, or that micro segment or whatever you like to say, they're not going to put up with that. And, and they're probably going to get a lot, lot more upset about it. So I think there's just a really good lesson there that even once you've identified your target market and customers within that, in the early stages, finding those early adopters within that market is super important. Yes, totally agree. Yeah. So you did the inside sales and it sounds like that was basically the the main way that you you grew the business at what point did you start looking at other things like inbound marketing i will say yeah quite late into our journey i will say we start having our marketing department maybe around 2016 17 to start build our marketing function to have demand generation, inbound marketing. That was quite late at our journey. Yeah. So inside sales was pretty much the driver of customer acquisition and growth for the first six, seven years? I will say at least first four, four to five years. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your experience going through building this this business because you know we, we sort of explain to people where you were in terms of the size of the business and customers and 800 employees and then that you've raised over 51 million dollars but the thing that we didn't explicitly sort of talk about was that not only is patsnap your first startup it was basically your first job out of college and so everything you've learned about jobs and, and business, really it's come from the experience of, of this idea that you had and you, started to, you decided to go out and build. So tell me a little bit about some of the, the challenges that you've experienced by having had to not, not had any sort of other experience or frame of reference before you went into to building this business. Yes. Yeah, looking back, it was really tough, um, very tough because I 
I started Pestnet fresh out of college. I didn't have any context on in the working world, like how to even recruit, how to build a customer and many things else, how to build a sales team. So I, I really didn't have much context. And that was why in the, even up until now, still make a lot of mistakes, still learn a lot every, every single day. I, I see that entrepreneurship is definitely a self-learning, understanding yourself better. And along the way, it's a very condensed, intense learning journey as well. At least this is uh, how I view my journey so far. When, when we were talking earlier, you, you said that some of the, the challenges for you in the early days was having a lack of confidence or conviction. How did that sort of play out or manifest itself in, in terms of the way you were running the business or, or some of the difficulties that created? Yes, because I, I guess all these add to it because this was my first experience, first startup, first working experience. So I didn't have a lot of context. Therefore, I think in the early days, I think I lack of that confidence or, or conviction how to run a business, where the business should go. So that was part of it. And also the other part of it is also my, I, I was still figuring out my leadership style and I, I still do every day how to improve my leadership style. But back then I was, I will be quite straightforward or direct with my team in terms of my thinking, be it in a good day or bad day, in a good mood or, or bad mood. I think I will just uh, share everything with the team and that wasn't, so good sometimes because in the early days yeah when especially when i'm not in a good day most of the time because it was quite quite tough those days so it actually impact the morale and also affect their confidence as well i think there was one time where i think with my angel investor back then we went around the world try to pitch for our idea for our first series a funding and i remember we go around the world and, and spend, I think, one, two months time and didn't make any headway. And we were back to our office. And I couldn't remember what exactly was the agenda, but somehow we had a heated debate, kind of a heated argument. And, and he told me that, hey, Jeff, you are not fit to be a CEO. So I was quite disappointed back then. This comment came from him, someone I respected a lot. And, and it's true. I think uh, where he, because he said that, hey, Jeff, when you talk to investor, when you pitch to investor or even talking to your team, you always show your, put your face on your sleeve. You are not confident even in your own idea. You should appear that you know better than everyone on the table. So I was, back then, I just couldn't comprehend it because a lot of things were still very uncertain. Yes, we were making some progress. We were making some some revenue or product is still uh, continuing to becoming to, to become better every day. But this is I, I, back then. I just don't have the full context or can't see very clearly where the company is going. Clearly, uh, crystal clear. So that, that was why I I wasn't I didn't appear as confident or as much conviction as I should have. So I couldn't recall a specific moment when this changed. But I think it just takes. Uh, another couple months, uh, one, two years, slowly I realized that, hey, actually, this is my my style as well. I'm more, maybe I would call it authentic uh, style where I would just say it how it is to the people. And this actually have its benefit that this usually actually help create the trust better as well between me and anyone I meet. Of course, there's still other side that, that I need to improve. I shouldn't always show my concern in front of them. Sometimes I just have to deal, deal with it myself, have to think through it, and then let them know what I believe is the direction. I think over the years as well, as more things happen, more, I would say, more weight on the belt, I think it, it helped me also give me more confidence. I think overall, that was the journey I had in terms of my personal leadership development. Yeah, leadership is a tough game, right? And from my personal experience and, and having spent many years at, at Microsoft, people want to be, they want to be um, 
involved. They want to know what's going on. They want, you know, as much transparency to feel like, you know, then they, they can have the confidence and they're not going to have any surprises around the corner and they can be successful at their roles, but they don't necessarily want all the, the shit that you as a leader are having to, to deal with. Right. And, and that's the, the tough thing that I personally experienced as well is like, how much of that do you filter out and, and how much do you share with people? And, and sometimes I, I've made those mistakes where I kind of was too open with some, some people trying to be completely transparent and people telling me that was the most demoralizing all hands I've ever been to. And I was like, great, I'm not going to, talk about that again. It's, it's a really tough kind of balancing act, I think, to, to know that. But, but I think that the important thing here is that, that it was, you, you had that self-awareness and, and, and I think it starts there from, from understanding what you, you're doing, what you feel, you know, you do well, where you need to improve. And then, and then having that awareness to, to sort of understand how, how people are perceiving your leadership style and communication. Yeah, no, I think you pointed out a very key concept, the self-awareness. I think there's no, at least this is my own experience and also all the years talk to other entrepreneurs as well. There's no one right type of leadership style. I think it, it came in different form. I see many different style of leadership works as well. And as you mentioned, in different contexts, dealing with different people, it, it is different as well. But I think the self-awareness is the first step. I find that it is very key. At least you're aware that in this context, in this scenario, it doesn't work so well. So next time, just have to try something different. I think the self-awareness to be able to know that, hey, this is not working. Hey, that one seems working well and have the courage to face it and see how, how I can do better next time. I think that that is, that is the key. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think even today, there are still leadership challenges for you. You, you were telling me that, you know, now it's a different set of challenges as you're, you're, you're bringing in, you know, sort of more mature senior leaders into the organization. Tell us about how, that, how the challenges for you have sort of changed now. Yes. So um, as the organization grow from, in the early days, 5% to 50 to 200, and now we are at about 800 people. I, I realized that my leadership style has to change accordingly as well. Back in the early days, when the team is small, 10, 20 people, I can easily just grab everyone out for lunch, for a meal, and then just you know talk to them, get to know everyone better. But now at the current size of the business, that, that wasn't possible anymore. So and one thing, especially the last few years, as we grow our business globally in different regions, that also added a lot more complexity because different places, the culture is very different as well. For example, my team in Asia, as compared to in, in London, as compared to even in, uh, in Toronto, in North America, in LA, the, the culture was, was quite different. So how do I work with them to still be under the one under one roof, under one pestnet culture, that was actually not easy. And also we had to build and grow our leadership team. So in the early days it was just myself and of my few founding partners. And along the way, as and most of us, we have uh, all together, including myself, four of us, the founding team. Three of us are this is the first time, first proper job for us, fresh out of college. So all of us were very raw and inexperienced as well. And along the way, we also have more senior, experienced, uh, seasoned professional to join the leadership team. And how that transition being done, how do I make sure the seasoned professional, they can, they can have their expertise and gel well with our early, I call it the founding team DNA, that was also very crucial. And uh, I actually call... We have a zero to one, the founding team, zero to one kind of experience. They are very innovative, entrepreneurial, and they can start from nothing and build nothing to something with a lot of uncertainty. I think the founding team and the early employees are good at that. 
while we also need, now that the company has scale, we also need another type uh, of people who are very good at managing the day-to-day, who is very good at scaling up the operation, bring it from one, I call it from one to 10. So this is also, I find it is a very different skill set as compared to the early days zero to one and how we gel the zero to one type of people and the one to 10 type of people together. And we need both, even though at our size, because we still need innovation, we still need new ideas. So that is what some of the, some of the lesson I learned in the last uh, two, three years. You know, we often hear people talk about you can't succeed unless you have a co-founder and you're a solo founder and, and you know, from what I can see, you, you've done pretty, pretty well. What advice would you give to somebody who maybe is in that situation, who either hasn't been able to find the right co-founder or maybe for whatever reason feels like this is a journey that at this point they need to take on their own? What were some of the, the biggest challenges for you being that, that single founder and what advice would you give somebody in that situation? Yes. I think being a solo founder is, is definitely, definitely tough. Um, I, I would say anyone in, in this position or in the, as the, the ultimate leader of an organization, I can uh, really empathize with this. It's, it's not easy because end of the day, someone have to make the final decision for the organization. And this is, this is not easy because you have to bear the consequences and you have to make sure you are making the right decision for your whole organization, for all your stakeholders, including your shareholder, your investor, your, all your employees, um, everyone. So definitely there are many times there were kind of uh, lonely times where I feel like I'm on a mountain at the top of the mountain, there are cold wind blowing at you and it's, it's uh, lonely. I'm fortunate that in the early days, I have a founding team member, my partners now have been with me for more than 10 years. Uh, and many times we also share, I call it share the laughter and the joy and the tears together along the journey. Because we actually argue, we debate, we fight. But at the end of the day, I think it's, it's good that we actually still share the journey together and um, uh, talk about things together. End of the day, yes, I have to make the decision, but having a, a strong team, a good team, good partners are, is the way. It is the way to build an organization, to scale an organization, and also only through a, a strong team, you can achieve greater things because with yourself alone, you are nothing. So that, that is kind of my, my reflection on my journey so far. Yeah, and I, I think even... If you if you have a co-founder or co-founders, you know all the better. If you don't, then I think it's do do you have a good support network and partners or people that you can you can at least how did you put it share the laughter, joy and tears with. Yeah. I think that's that's a beautiful way to put it. Love that. Yes. Yes. All right. Uh, we should wrap up, Jeff. So I'm going to go into the the lightning round. I've got uh, seven quick fire questions for you. So are you ready to go? Yeah, sure. Okay. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? I think someone uh, in the early days, there's one, someone told me before that if anything you see on the news is already too late. I, I thought that was quite true. If you see that there are a lot of people, are, let's say talking about, let's say blockchain, talking about AI, by then it is too late for you to, to, to work on. And by definition, if you are working on something innovative and new, others don't know about it yet. So I think sometimes just be confident at what you are working on and don't, don't try to jump on what is hot at the moment. Yeah. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? See, there was a book called Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Top of my head, yeah. Yep, great book. Uh, what's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? Yeah, there are many, many dimensions to it. I, I think one thing is um, to be persistent, to be diligent, and I think just need some luck for a successful entrepreneur. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? 
I like to go jogging whenever I feel just need some refreshment of my mind because after giving out a sweat and exercise, I feel, I feel better and I can think better. What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time and hasn't been talked about on the news? <laughs> no, I actually, yeah, Elon Musk is really a good uh, role model. Uh, if, if I have a chance, maybe something related to space exploration or maybe a deep sea diving exploration as well. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? I guess maybe people see that I'm running an 800 person organization from, from the outside. I think maybe sometimes it's hard for them to think I'm actually an introvert. I actually like spending time alone. Uh, but of course, over the years, I met more founders and CEOs who are also introvert. But at least for me, I'm, I'm more introvert type. Yeah, uh, me, me too. It's, uh, I, like, I like connecting with people. I love, you know, I like these conversations we're having. But for me to recharge, I, I got to have plenty of time alone in solitude. What's one of your most important passions outside of your work? Unfortunately, as a founder, I think my, all my time is about building the business. I would say outside of that, I, I would like to spend time with my, with my kids, watch some movies, uh, read some books, uh, do some exercise. That, that is uh, what I do outside of my work. Awesome. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. Um, it's been a pleasure. PatSnap is an area or a, a problem space that I had absolutely no knowledge about. And it's just been fascinating to learn more about the, the opportunities here. And then also, you know, kind of following the journey of, of you from, from that internship and, and seeing how much of a pain this was to, to building this business over the last 13 years. So I really enjoyed the conversation. If people want to find out more about PatSnap, they can go to patsnap.com. And if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, they can just uh, reach, reach out to me on LinkedIn or send an email to me at jtiong at patsnap.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, I wish you all the best. And uh, thank you for waking up early in Shanghai to chat with me today. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, Amel. Yeah, have a good weekend ahead. Cheers. Thank you. Easy, thank you.